0: Good evening. This is Heartstock Radio. I'm your host, Carol Murphy, and Clark Grant is in the studio. Today, our guest is Bob Quinn. He's a Ph.D., and he's the founder of Kamut International here in Montana. He um, hails from Big Sandy. In just a moment, Bob will be with us and tell us all about what he is up to. I also would like to remind you that you can email us at heartstockradio at gmail.com. You can also find us on Facebook where we post our previous shows, recordings, and our uh, announcements for our up and coming. We're going to take a little break here. We'll be right back with Bob Quinn. This is Heartstock. <laughs>
1: This was made
0: with me. A follow the- Hello and good evening. I'm Carol Murphy, and you're listening to Heartstock Radio. Thank you so much for listening in. Today, our guest is Bob Quinn, PhD, and he is the founder of Kamut. Am I saying that correctly, Bob? Kamut?
1: Yes, Kamut. That's right.
0: He is the founder and head honcho at Kamut International. Hi, Bob, and thanks so much for being on Heartstock.
1: Thanks for inviting me, Carol. It's a real honor to be here.
0: Indeedy. And um, we were just talking a little earlier about um, all of your accomplishments. Can you please share just a little intro here with our listeners, uh, what you do, and a little bit about your company?
1: Well, um, my company is only part of my life, actually. I'm um, Well, I was raised on a wheat and cattle ranch southeast of Big Sandy that my grandfather started in 1920. Um, it's 2,400 acres at that time, and um, uh, I went to school in Big Sandy, graduated from high school there, and went on to college at Montana State University and studied botany and plant pathology. I love plants, and I love science, and so I decided to see if I could combine those two and be a plant scientist. That was my goal. So I finished um, a a, um, bachelor's and a master's degree at Montana State, and then went on for a Ph.D. at UC uh, Davis in California studying plant biochemistry. But when I finished after 10 years of college, I was a little disillusioned with academia, and I decided eventually to come back to the farm. And I came back in in um, 1978. And um, at that time, my folks were still here. So we farmed together, my my family and my my parents. But it was a little bit of a small farm for two families. It was just right for one. And so I tried to figure out how we could add more value to our farm. I didn't want to buy out the neighbors because I like our neighbors. And I didn't want to um, go to town and get an extra job or send my wife to town for an extra job because we had more than we could do right on the farm, actually. And so I... Started a small business called uh, Montana Flower and Grain in 83, selling grain directly to whole grain bakers, our our crops, whole grain bakers in California. That added about 30% to our bottom line and, and started turning things around for us um, with two families on the farm. We started going to food shows and in 86, and by that time we were um, – Increasing our grain um, uh, business so that we were also offering stone ground flour from our company that was now located in Fort Benton and uh, a little bit of organic grain. And at that food show, we also introduced an ancient wheat that I had first seen when I was a kid in high school that was going around the county. And uh, we had one person that was interested. And from that one person of interest, we We planted about half acre in 86, and within 30 years, we were up to 100,000 acres contrasting with organic farmers all over Montana, Alberta, and Saskatchewan, about 250 organic farmers we ended up working with. And that is sold all over the world, and that's how uh, Kamut International came into being. We registered the trademark Kamut to sell the grain under, and, and the trademark means that it's always grown organically. It's always pure ancient wheat. and the and it's not, uh, and people have to tell the truth about it. Uh, can't pretend it's not wheat. And what we found that it um, compared the modern wheat. Sorry. And so people who could not eat modern wheat could eat this without difficulty. And and um, it just went from there. So that was that was my life. My my whole farm became my research center. Uh, we converted it to organic in 80 started in 86, and by 88 we had used our last chemicals. And um, we've been organic ever since, and I've never looked back on that. I promote or, organic agriculture, regenerative organic agriculture, all over the world now. So I believe it's the future.
0: And why? What is so important, and, and why are you so passionate about organic, regenerative agriculture?
1: Well, Carol, that's a good question. You know, if you look around, we have all kinds of crises in this country. And a lot of them are tied to cheap food. So we have a cheap food, cheap and abundant food policy in, in this country for the last 60 years or so. And that's been the, the, the declared goal of the USDA and, and administrations who's ever been in power. That's what they've been wanting to do. And they've achieved that goal. But there's been an extremely high cost for cheap food. And you don't pay that cost at the checkout counter. You pay it Later on, uh, when you see your neighbors and the farm neighbors are all going out of business because they they can't afford to pay for their inputs, which are extremely expensive with low priced um, commodities, you pay for it in your small communities when you see them drying up. Big Sandy has gone from 1,000 to 600 after a lot of the surrounding farmers went broke and moved away. So that's really decreased the communities. I, you know, I don't really look on that as progress. People think, oh, man, we're, we're doing so great and our yields are increasing. But it's coming at a terrible high cost. The other cost is the cost of the environment. We have glyphosate now in our rain. So the rain that falls on our farm is contaminated with pests, with herbicides, with glyphosate, with Roundup. And it's not only our rain, that glyphosate is used in such abundance as it contaminates the soils, the surface waters, the groundwaters, and, and chemicals in general have uh, created a dead zone in the Gulf of Mexico the size of New Jersey. Uh, children in Iowa cannot even drink their water in their farms because of the high nitrate um, uh, is in the water. It's not healthy for them. And I just wonder how far, how, how much damage do we have to go before have to have before we start thinking that maybe we're on the wrong track here. And the most important and, and um, costly um, effect of all is our health. Um, Crying disease is on the rampage, and most of it can be tied back to poor nutrition in our food. Even though it's quite abundant, the nutrient density is quite low now just because of the way it's raised. So organic can solve all of those problems. It can bring better economy back to the farm, um, improve the soils, and therefore if you're using good seed, improve the, the nutrient density of the plants, and therefore the food, and therefore the health of the people, reduce uh, the pesticide load on our planet by eliminating it uh, farm by farm, and, um, uh, and 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 be the, the source of, of good health and reversing our trend for um, chronic diseases and even non-chronic diseases like the COVID thing. If if people were really in good health and and had a good strong immune system, that would be the best answer to COVID and any other disease that would come along.
0: And I'm wondering also, do you have an investigative approach as far as managing your soil and how has that changed over time being organic?
1: Well, in the very beginning we were just um, luckily we started on a, a system that turned out to be the best. And that was uh, using alfalfa to convert our ground from chemical agriculture to um, regenerative organic agriculture and what alfalfa does is after sitting the ground for two or three years it really builds up the soil being a legume as nitrogen having a deep root root, it really competes against weeds and if you have a good stand that the weeds are just gone they, they, they uh, disappear and so when we start our organic we break that alfalfa out and start planting organic crops we don't have an extreme weed problem we use um, legumes to build the soil, and we use crop rotations to eliminate the uh, need for chemical pesticides and herbicides, and the uh, legumes eliminate the need for chemical fertilizers. So that's, um, that's how it works, and I've traveled all over the world and worked with organic farmers on almost every continent, and um, uh, the principles are all the same, um, and it works in every, in every uh, continent. Uh, the the exact way you apply those principles, of course, vary from region to region and climate to climate, but the principles are the same throughout the world.
0: I recently watched a documentary, Kiss the Ground, and um, have you have you seen this documentary by chance?
1: No, but I'm scheduled to watch it this week. I think I've signed up for um, a a a free release of it or some kind of release. So I'm looking forward to that.
0: Yes, yes. And that in a kind of a circuitous route is how I found you, Bob. And they talk an awful lot about capturing carbon and just how much we can really do for climate change with the soil. Can you talk about... Well,
1: that's an area I hadn't even mentioned is climate change. And, yeah. uh, you don't have to ask farmers about climate change because they're too busy trying to respond to it. Um, they, they don't argue about... They don't have the luxury of arguing whether it exists or not. But um, if uh, scientists estimate that if, if if we all turn to organic, then the, the amount of carbon that would go back into the soil in the terms of, of humus and um, uh, organic matter would almost completely reverse the amount of carbon that's been spewed into the atmosphere over the last few decades. And so that is another um, answer to a a fairly complex problem that we can um, uh, use organic agriculture, regenerative organic agriculture, to be a real key player in.
0: Indeed, And you mentioned a little bit earlier about your educational endeavors can you talk a little bit more about that um i'm just kind of curious and yearning deeply within my heart that we could really rapidly advance these principles is that happening
1: well it's starting to i mean it's taken a generation i've been working on this now for all my career essentially or uh, most of it for over 35 years And we've gone in the last 35 years. We've gone from near zero um, organic um, food in the grocery stores to around six percent. At the current growth rate, in another 35 years, another generation, it'll be 100 percent. So even though it's a very slow start when you start from zero, um, even if you're adding um, 15 to 25 percent a year, which is is doing in early years, uh, if you're down to eight or nine percent growth now, or seven, even. Um, it it can really start to add up when the the, um, baseline gets up there close to 10%, then it really starts taking off. Mm -hmm. So I I have a great uh, hope that we can continue, and it really is the only area of agriculture that has any growth uh, to speak of, and it's the only one that really is bringing prosperity back to rural America.
0: I'd really love to talk about that a little bit more also just that the reduction of inputs and the increase of the bottom line, uh, you know, farmers, <laughs> it's it's tough. The business farming's tough, and with all of the financial advantages, can you talk about that a little bit?
1: Well, what we saw on our farm that we were able to reduce our inputs by about two thirds and more than double the value of our outputs. So that within about three years, we no longer had the were required to have an operating note. We didn't have to borrow money every spring to buy all kinds of inputs because we were, we're growing our own inputs. And so that was a big boon to us. And then when we sold our crops, they were worth uh, two or three times more than what they were before we were organic. And that was also another boon to us. So the um, reducing our costs and increasing our income um, had the net effect of um, putting us in the in the black. We were starting to make money now instead of um, relying only on the government payments to put us into the black,
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, and the government payments that we received in the in the 80s, at least, just about covered our chemical bills. So we weren't getting any payments at all. We were just um, uh, being a checkbook transfer from the U.S. Treasury to um, chemical companies, and then went through our checkbook. We didn't see. We didn't get to keep any of that money. So that was a very cleverly designed program that. Um, benefited mostly out-of-state chemical um, uh, giants and then uh, the uh, agricultural chemical industrial complex so that's who benefited it and and they extract wealth from rural America all the time the same with the, the um, large uh, many of the large grain companies are the same I tell whoever wants to listen to me that we don't grow a single commodity on our farm this commoditization of, of the farms has also been another downfall in, in economics of it because everything is based on volume and, and yet that volume is worth very, very little. And so you have to be focusing on increasing the volume all the time to try to get enough money to pay your expenses. If we were to get off that treadmill and focus on quality and sell it for higher prices and then reduce our the cost of production, we're going to be in a lot better financial situation. And, and that's what I try to promote um, with the organic production, the regenerative systems.
0: We're going to take a little break here, and in just a moment, we will be right back with Bob Quinn. This is Heartstock. Mm-hmm. Stock Radio, and I'm your host, Carol Murphy. Clark Grant is in the studio, and today we're speaking with Bob Quinn. Hi again, Bob.
1: Howdy do. do? (laughs) Great to be here, Carol. Thanks for inviting me.
0: Oh, thank you. So this leads to, we were just speaking about um, the increase in profitability that you've experienced on your biodynamic farm. And you know I'm just really hmm there there's the customer side of this, you know when you look at uh the business of farming, is the public ready is the public ready to take on um and accept the fact that we just can't afford to do agriculture in any other way anymore
1: I think that's a really good question, Carol first of all our our farmers not biodynamic oh I'm <laughs> that sorry. is another um that's another uh, system of agriculture um that sort of organic and beyond but um we're doing regenerative organic but it's it's a it's a, cl- a close cousin anyway but okay. um okay well,
0: we'll have to do another oh, show on that
1: the difference. that's right you should because that, <laughs> there are a few biodynamic farms in montana and they open up a whole new vista of um of agriculture that's very very interesting but to get back to your question is yes. the public ready for you know paying uh, the value of, um, of high dent- nutrient density food. And the, thing, the way I always answer that question is say that you can't look at food by itself. You've got to combine food and health. <clears throat> and if you combine food and health, then you have something you can work with. 60 years ago, the uh, percent of people's income spent on food was about 18, 19%. And on health was about 6 or 7 or 8%. Now that's, that um, percentage is just reversed, and we're spending um, seven, nine percent for food and 18, 19 percent for, for health care. And so the total, which is uh, just under between 20 and 30 percent somewhere in that range, um, the total doesn't change much, but how it's distributed does. And so the more you spend on food of high value, that's going to keep you healthy, the less you're going to have to spend on health care. But the total will be nearly the same. So that's not going to be anything new. That's going to, in fact, the, um, the, since we're spending so much on health care now, when we save the health care, we don't have to increase our uh, double the cost of our food. But if we increase it a little bit, we can more than make up the increase that we spend on food with the savings on health. And that's what I think we need to talk about. In, I think people are are ready to start listening to that with all the disease and all the problems with health that that we see in this country right now.
0: And let's talk a little bit about your book, Grain by Grain. How did that come about?
1: Well, I um, spent a lifetime of uh researching and developing different um philosophies of farming and uh, food and agriculture i didn't start out with all these ideas um i didn't start i wasn't born organic i uh stepped into it just a a little at a time and, and built one one brick upon another to build a new house around all this stuff and um I was astounded at the conclusions I was starting to, to draw from our, our research of the ancient grain that I mentioned earlier. We published 35 peer-reviewed journal articles now that you can find on our website uh, at commute.com. Um, It really uh, changed the way I thought about agriculture and communities and farming and eating. And I thought that it was, um, had enough potential and, and answered enough questions and it was a, enough solutions to significant problems that we see in this country and around the world that I'd like to share with other people. And that's why I decided to write a book to share those experiences and my conclusions and what I learned. Um in a way that um is just quite matter of fact and and not uh, preachy and you know it's not coming from some um uh, group that's, you know, just collecting ideas, but it's from real experiences. And that's what I wanted to share with people.
0: Are there any additional pearls that you haven't already shared that you can tell us about from your book?
1: Well, how long do we have?
0: I know, only only half an hour. and um, <laughs> Oh, half
1: an hour. Yeah. Well, then, then <laughs> well, I would... 10 more well, minutes. <laughs> okay, well, <laughs> if people really like the idea and some of the things we were talking about, I encourage them to get the book. It's, you can get it online. You can get it in audio. You can get it in in uh, print um, and, and, and delve into the different chapters. There's also an area on on renewable energy. I felt felt renewable energy is really... Goes hand in hand with uh, regenerative organic agriculture. And we're involved, um, my cousins and I, in, in Montana's first development of Montana's first wind farm over by Judith Gap. That was quite a story in and of itself. Um, we are, we've added to our farm an oil press business where we grow high-oil lake safflower oil, all organic, of course. And it's the best kind of oil for your hardest um, monounsaturated. And uh, we supply the oil um, in Montana State University and the University of Montana, and then we take the used oil back and we clean it up and use it in diesel engines. Um, we had a tractor, i 'm looking at putting together a co generation of heat and electricity using our waste oil on the on the farm and so we are uh, focusing on the, the big question—that's uh, it's not so big in Montana in some places—of uh, using your ground for either raising fuel or food. And with this program, we can do both. We can we can raise vegetable oil first for food, and then we can use the used oil for for, for fuel. And I think that's the best way to answer those kind of questions: to make the best use of all of our resources possible.
0: Yes, and it's very circular, and circularity is a big thing in all supply chains these days because we're yes, using Yes, that's our, right. And,
1: it's yeah. just, and, and, and the idea is if you can keep the miles off of it, keep it community-based so every community can participate, um, use the oil locally, and then use the fuel locally. Um, and then all that money that you spend on both of those things stays, stays right in the communities, and that's another community-building aspect that I always like to um, um, promote.
0: And then you also had um, a conference, Wheat Land Races, is that oh, we, right?
1: We did. We uh, we had a worldwide, uh, first world um, conference of land races uh, for healthy food systems. That was the title of it. And it was in um, Bologna two years ago, and the whole thing is recorded and now on YouTube. And so you can watch any part or all of it that you'd like. Um uh, and you can go to our uh, website again for that, for the for the links, or my blog and Instagram, which is bobquinnorganicfarmer.com, and you can find the links there. And we had people from about 25 countries all over the world. 120 people showed up, and it was a three-day conference, which ended in uh, which actually focused on, on on ancient wheat and and health compared to modern wheat. And also, on production and processing aspects, which is an important part of the food system, and it was um well attended, and they're getting ready to um the folks enjoyed it so much they want they voted to have another one in two or three years and, and of course, now everything's on hold with the pandemic that's going on, but we're looking forward to having another one here in the next uh, few years
0: let's talk next about year or two. yeah that's that's exciting stuff, um, and I'm kind of curious. Why, why Italy? Why did you choose Italy as a place for your conference?
1: Well, that's a good question. I, I wanted to actually I'd been doing some work with the Boblov Institute in St. Petersburg um in Russia, and I really was hoping to have it there because uh, Nikolai Boblov was one of the most outstanding botanists um, ever to live in the twentieth um, century. And he got sideways with the um with the with the Kremlin. And um, Lenin had him executed, uh, finally or starved to death. And so, one of his goals was to prevent world hunger or prevent famines. So the man who was really trying to prevent famines died of of starvation in a prison camp, which is quite an irony. Mm-hmm. Uh, he went all over the world collecting seeds, um, a lot of grains, including wheat, that would could be adapted to grow better crops and avoid famines, and so crops would be more sustainable. His workers in St. Petersburg, when St. Petersburg was surrounded by the, the Germans and under siege for three years, um, refused to eat the seeds that could have saved their lives, and, and many of them starved to death rather than eating the seeds that were collected by Bobloff and his team which I thought was an amazing story of sacrifice and devotion. And I really wanted to have the conference there. But in the end, we weren't able to. And Italy provided kind of a a hub for uh, the activity that was already going on. And they were very welcoming and and were offered to plant um, selections that people sent in from all over the world so that during the conference we could actually see the the wheat, the ancient wheat's, I'll head it out and compare them and that was really one of the highlights of the conference so that worked out really well for us.
0: We've got maybe about three minutes left here and I'm hoping you can share with us what's so special about the ancient wheat as compared to modern day wheat species.
1: Well it's how we bred the modern wheat and we bred it focused on on yield for the farmers and on bread yield for the bakers so they want High loaf volume, so you can get more air in a loaf of bread, and therefore make more money. And uh, you know, Americans got real used to air bread. You know, that we all know and love. And yet, um, the air bread was created by changing the uh, proteins enough that allowed the um, gluten to hold that much air. But while I was doing that, a secondary unintended consequence was that, and it's not just the gluten, but the consequence of making so many changes a crops that a lot of people couldn't eat anymore. Some estimates would say up to 20% of the people in this country can no longer eat wheat. Wheat was the corner of civilization, it was the staff of life. For thousands of years it built the great civilizations of Rome and and Egypt and the Phoenicians and all those, Middle East particularly, um, civilizations, and now all of a sudden 20% can no longer eat it. That's That's really a paradox. So we've not only changed the way we've bred the wheat, we also changed the way we grow it. So I tell people, if you do four things, you'll probably be able to eat wheat again, uh, 90% of you. Nothing's 100%, but those 90% of those you're having trouble, if you first start with the seed, an ancient grain or a heritage wheat that hasn't been um, changed in the last 60 years, but it's pre-World War II, if you take that seed and you grow it organically so there's no um, pesticide residuals on it because some of the, especially like glyphosate uh, residuals, cause also digestive problems and mimic um, what we a lot of people think is com- uh, coming from wheat sensitivities. It's actually uh, glyphosate sensitivity. And then if you eat whole grain instead of white flour, you have the whole value of the grain instead of throwing away a third of the nutrition and then eat sourdough instead of yeasted breads. The sourdough process is fermenting for up to 12 to 24 hours and and destroying a large amount of gluten. In fact, in 36 hours, um, a sourdough fermentation will destroy over 90% of the gluten in in dough and it pre digests for you and so it's easy to finish off the digestion and and if you do those four things, you'll have a lot more success eating wheat.
0: Hmm. So please, um, in the last few seconds we have here, Bob, can you please tell our listeners once again how they might find you?
1: Sure. My email is bob at uh, If you're just looking for reference material or some of the things we talked about today, you can find it on kamut.com, our website, or my blog and Instagram is bobquinorganicfarmer.com
0: Fantastic. We'll definitely get you back and we'll carry on this conversation because there's well, thank you. so much more that we can talk about and um, really appreciate it. Thanks for being on Heartstock.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Mm-hmm. And once again, we will see you next week. This is Heartstock. I'm Carol Murphy, your host. Peace. So come shine.
1: Heartstock Radio is a production of KBMF 102.5, Butte America Radio. Here are live programs every Friday at 5 p.m. Mountain Standard Time via live stream at butteamericaradio.org.
0: As I, went walking, I saw a sign there, and on the side, No trespassing, but on me.